The death of a mother during childbirth is a tragedy anywhere in the world. The painful event touches family members, communities, medical staff, and all those connected to the delivery. Death of the mother is an outlier. It's not what's supposed to happen. It's not what's intended. Given this almost universal gasp, it's all the harder to accept the high rates of maternal mortality that seem to persist in different parts of the globe, including in different parts of the United States. Against this sobering backdrop, though, something new is taking place. It comes in the form of reframing the problems, the solutions, and the people needed to bring about change. This means, among other things, tapping the ingenuity of frontline healthcare workers, thinking creatively about limited resources, making better use of the support systems available to pregnant women, and better understanding everyone's hopes, needs, and fears. From the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, welcome to WIHI on this midsummer day here in Massachusetts. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and also IHI's Director of Communications. We're doing something a bit different with this edition of WIHI with the help of a terrific panel, including someone joining all the way from Ghana. We're connecting dots that don't usually get connected in the research literature or even even an anecdotal discussion. We're doing this because we believe that the best practices needed to prevent maternal mortality and complications and to help mothers and newborns thrive reside in the specifics of place and location, but also in the wisdom and overriding learning from all of these efforts combined. All right, now to introductions, and I want to remind everyone there's much more information about our guests on the WIHI web pages. Each of these individuals uh, has impressive backgrounds and bios. On the phone from the capital of Ghana, Accra, is Dr. Nana Twamdanso. She's the director of Project Fives Alive, and that's a partnership between the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and the National Catholic Health Service of Ghana. This initiative focuses on improving maternal and child health services, working closely with the largest healthcare provider in that country, the Ghana Health Service. Welcome, Nana. Hi, Matt. Hello. There you are. Good. Okay. All right. Also on the phone, but a lot closer, is Dr. Joe Ivy Buford, president of the New York Academy of Medicine. Dr. Buford is also a professor of public service at the Robert Wagner Graduate School of Public Service and clinical professor of pediatrics at New York University School of Medicine. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Here in the studio, it's, uh, by the way, Nana, what time is it in Ghana? It's 3 o'clock. 3 o'clock. Okay. Morning and afternoon. See, we're doing something else here, too, as well. We've got different times of day. Here in the studio with me is IHI's managing director, Sue Gullo, among other things, and Sue does a lot of things. Sue leads a major collaborative work in the United States on improving perinatal care. Welcome, Sue. Thanks, Madge. Good to have you here. And uh, an unannounced, uh, last-minute, great additional guest, and we're thrilled to have her here with us, is Kim Armour, a certified nurse practitioner in women's health care and perinatology. Kim works closely with Sue and the teams in the IHI Perinatal Collaborative. Welcome, Kim. Thank you so much. All right. If you're just joining us, and thanks uh, for all of those who, who are onboarding. This is, again, WIHI. I'm Madge Kaplan, and our focus is safer maternal care with a particular lens today on Ghana and the United States. I'm going to start off with Nana Twamdanso, who's going to set the scene for us in Ghana. Now, Nana has the challenging task of distilling a lot of activity that's underway in a very compacted fashion to fit the format of WIHI. And when we get to questions, 
questions and comments. She's more than happy to fill in any additional details you'd like to know about. And I just want to remind people there's a lot of information about the work in Ghana and in other developing countries on IHI.org. So, Nana, why don't you take it away? Uh, You and I talked a bit about sort of some of the um, kind of highlights that we think would be helpful. Uh, So you can start perhaps by uh, describing, uh, just kind of set the scene for us in in Ghana and uh, what you're engaged in. Welcome. Thanks, Mag. Um, So let me start by describing a little bit about the project and then go into how we are trying to influence maternal survival in Ghana through quality improvement. So this project is called Five Alive, and the focus um, for the project is um, assisting and accelerating the survival of um, children under age five, assisting the, the country to achieve Millennium Development Goal 4, and that is 66% reduction in our child mortality from the high of 1990, around 110 to 120 deaths per thousand live births, to what our aim is, which is less than 40 per thousand live births before 20, by 2015. So that's our aim. And this uh, project, as Maya explained, is a partnership between the IHI and the Catholic Health Service in Ghana. In close collaboration with the Ghana Health Service, we have a, a, a vision to uh, use the quality improvement approaches that um, IHI has used in so many different parts of the world to assist to achieve um, health goals, apply those same quality improvement methods and tools, adapt them as necessary to the Ghanaian context to improve service delivery for mothers and children. Um, we are, we're funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And uh, through working on maternal and child health, we decided to look at the, um, the existing maternal and child health program in Ghana, which covers the spectrum from antenatal care when a woman gets pregnant and goes to the health center for health center or hospital for care, right through labor and delivery up to the age of five for the child. We're also looking at the continuum of care from home to the clinic, to the health center, to the hospital, which is really where women get their care and children get their care over time. So this is really how we as an under five mortality reduction project ends up working in maternal health because um, maternal health and child health are so integrally linked uh, through the newborn period. Um, about 40% of deaths in children under five happen during the first month of life, and 50% of those happen on the first year of life. So the project works very much in the maternal health uh, sphere as well as in the child health sphere. So um, in Ghana, his, uh, in the last few years, we've had uh, several surveys that have shown that our maternal mortality ratio is around uh, somewhere between 380 to 580 deaths per 100,000 live births which is quite high, um, and uh, the, the, the reason for these deaths, the medical reason for these deaths, uh, the top one is hemorrhage. Um, the second one um, is induced abortion, common cause of maternal deaths in Ghana, and then the third would be hypertensive disorders of pregnancy like preeclampsia, eclampsia, and sepsis. So um, in, in this, in this uh, context, looking at the medical causes, we can come up with medical approaches to address these causes, but I think what we've learned from the quality improvement approach is that it's not just the medical causes that 
uh, give us the outcomes that we have, but looking at the context, why is it that these women are dying from hemorrhage? Why is it that, that so many women are dying from induced abortion? So we, 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 we look deeper than the medical causes to so what we're calling root causes. And the root causes of maternal deaths, as we've learned uh, during the past few years of uh, working on, in this project, is that there, there are multiple root causes. I'll just touch on a few just to set the scene. Um, the first one um, are sociocultural reasons, a lot of traditional beliefs about um, delivery in a hospital or clinic versus delivery at home. Historically, many women delivered at home, and in that context, a certain rate would die, and it would be accepted as, you know, some women die, someone, some women live in childbirth. There's a certain fatalism around um, maternal death historically. So that still persists, particularly in the rural areas. I think um, the other is even when women have overcome those traditional beliefs, some of the uh, traditional communities, in some of the traditional communities, women don't have agency in the sense that they're not empowered to make decisions about their own health or the health of their children. So, um, so and that's a social cultural barrier as well. So that's one. I think the second one, and this is um, a real um, challenging one but easy to work on, is this genuine lack of knowledge about the risk of obstetric complications. Um, so there's lack of knowledge, and even when there's knowledge, I think there's a certain um, risk awareness, risk management that's missing in a lot of the people who don't have um, enough education to understand, you know, the basic biology of the human body, why things go wrong when you're sick, the reasons for the illness, and the fact that the health system can actually help you address the reasons for various complications. So just trying to convey that, you know, pregnancy for most women is safe, but there's there's a certain risk associated for every woman, and that woman uh, risk is better managed in the context of a, a health system is one of the challenges that we face here. The third one, and um, in the rural areas this is particularly problematic, is distance. Many of the communities are far from health facilities, so they have long distances to cross when they go into labor, oftentimes labor is at night and uh, traveling in the dark um, by, by foot or by bicycle is a challenge, and there are very uh, few means of transportation in this context as well. The quality of our roads in the rural areas are not always um, good, and during the rainy season, some of the roads literally disappear, or there are no bridges to go over the water or the waterlogged roads. So there are genuine uh, logistic challenges for women to seek care when they need them. And then, of course, the financial reasons uh, as well. You know, the, the Ghana government has recently made health insurance free for uh, maternity and early infant care. So at least the cost of care is now free for the women, but they still have to deal with the cost of transportation to the health facility, especially if the distance is far. Um, and then there are other reasons, like uh, sometimes women feel like they're not welcomed or not treated very well by the health staff when they get to the hospital or the clinic. Um, contraception use is very low, which explains why uh, uh, induced abortion is such a high uh, a, a prevalent uh, cause of death for women in Ghana. And then we have um, challenges in the rural areas where the midwives and doctors and others who provide this care are um, sometimes not willing to work in the rural areas because they don't have the same opportunities available to them as their colleagues in urban areas like uh, professional development, even housing, schools for their kids, 
job for their spouses, for example. So there's a certain reluctance for health workers to go to the rural areas. Again, the Ghana government is trying to address this by giving um, these health workers incentives, uh, financial and others. But I think there's a sort of more structural way to deal with this that we're yet to achieve in, in addressing why people don't want to work in rural areas. So those are some of the reasons. Um, and, the, the, like, and understanding the root causes of why why women seek care late or women don't come at all and therefore die needlessly, I think helps us to then start addressing what can be done differently to encourage women to come early, to encourage them to come sooner than they would otherwise, and then what can we do as health workers when they arrive to make sure we give them the best care. If they need referral, how do we manage our referral system, transportation to the next level, etc. So let me stop here for now in terms of setting the tone. Um, is that okay? Oh, absolutely. That's terrific. Let me just ask you for just another minute or two, uh, just give us a flavor of maybe some of the interventions that you think, uh, given the backdrop that you and the conditions that you laid out for us, maybe just a couple of kind of innovations uh, that have come forth that have made a big difference in sort of bridging some of these gaps that you described. Right. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a three delays model that is used to sort of look at why, why these, these deaths happen in women. And the first delay is um, recognition, delay in recognizing that you actually need health care. The second would be delay in getting to the health care, seeking the care, and then delay in providing the care by the health workers. And I think we've, we've, in this project we've tried very hard to work along all three streams and the, probably the first one is recognition that you do need help. And um, there's been a lot of innovations by the uh, health staff that we've worked with over the past few years. And the, probably the most important one is going to the communities and the women who typically don't seek care or seek care so late that we can't do much for them and find out why they don't come. Um, I think one of the things that we've learned in the quality improvement work is that uh, we don't make assumptions about um, different communities or individuals. So spending time with the individual, the communities, the chiefs, the community leaders to find out why don't the people come. Learn from them what their barriers are, what their beliefs are, and then together with the health workers, uh, come up with strategies to respect their beliefs, yet at the same time provide them the safe delivery that they deserve. Uh, one example would be in some of the communities where they believe that um, uh, uh, delivering at home is a sign of bravery or for the woman, it's kind of bravery, tough women or loyal women given live at home. Once you educate them about the uh, risk of, of uh, uh, childbirth, uh, the chief or the you know, decision makers in the community can decide, and they did decide in some settings, that moving forward, every woman should deliver in a health facility uh, for X reasons. And if you don't deliver, then your husband will pay a fine, for example. Um, the other, other interventions that have been uh, quite successful is using um, a video show, running a video in a community, explaining the risks of um, labor and delivery, what could go wrong, what health workers can do to help if something goes wrong. And then um, after the video ends, encouraging discussion between the, the community members and the health workers to find out more. And then based on that educational approach, we see behavior change um, weeks later. And then the, the key for quality improvement is to make sure this is not just a one-off behavior change, but rather keep going back to the communities, providing them feedback, if necessary showing the, the video again, and get, making sure that the behavior change is sustained. 
All right. Well, those are just, uh, that's really, really interesting uh, that you've just been listening to Dr. Nana Twomdanso from Accra, Ghana, uh, on the phone with us, giving us kind of a crash course in some critical work that's going on uh, to prevent and reduce mortality, excuse me, maternal mortality in Ghana and to improve outcomes for children. Nana, that's very, very helpful, and I applaud you in trying to kind of uh, distill some things. Uh, I also want to mention that just this morning, and it just sort of the time worked out this way. We did issue a press release this morning that's on IHI.org. You can find it on the homepage that talks about some very important progress that's going on in Ghana looked at through the lens of reducing under five mortality. And uh, I invite you to take a look at that as well. All right. Joe Ivy Buford uh, from the New York Academy of Medicine joining us uh, uh, by phone from New York. Um, I I know these are sort of leaps, uh, but I, I really do appreciate you guys sort of helping me kind of sort of weave in, in and out of all this. What do you hear in Nana's recounting of this work in Ghana that has some relevance uh, to what you're looking at in terms of reducing maternal mortality in certain parts uh, of New York City? Well, I think the I think the big similarity certainly is um, is educating women and also educating practitioners around what's really, um, at least in our data, showing to be a changing landscape of women giving birth. Um, And um, some of the things we've found is that the women uh, who are at highest risk for maternal mortality in New York City um, are women who are delivering later in life who may already have a chronic disease, especially obesity. Um, And I think the awareness of these as risk factors in getting pregnant uh, both for women themselves and their families as well as uh, the people who take care of them is not what it needs to be in terms of really identifying um, their potential risk and being prepared to um, to prevent uh, uh, things that can or sort of problems that can be prevented and certainly uh, treat uh, crises as they may emerge. Well, how would you kind of characterize, and I know each uh, location in the country is complex enough, but how would you characterize uh, the situation that you're looking at right now? I know the New York Academy of Medicine sponsored a conference in June and issued a white paper on what's going on in New York City. Can you kind of give us some highlights from that? Well, I think the real issue um, in New York City is that um, we are probably, we're certainly two times, twice as high on maternal mortality rate, about 24, as the U.S. average, which is around 12, and um, we're five times higher than the target of healthy people um, 2010, which is around a little over four. So statistically, New York City um, is the, um, has the highest maternal mortality within New York State, and New York State has the highest maternal mortality uh, within the United States. Um, so uh, these are, you know, really causes of concern. Uh, the specifics in New York City show that um, black women are seven times more likely to die in childbirth than uh, non-Hispanic white women, and that disparity is um, just of overwhelming significance, and it's associated uh, certainly with poverty, um, but uh, also um, other complications um, such as um, obesity, the presence of other chronic diseases, um, uh, delivering slightly later, and, uh, and other issues. So that the causes are quite similar. Um, I mean, embolism is the most common cause of death um, of uh, 
of women in New York City, uh, followed by uh, hemorrhage and sort of preeclampsia, high, you know, high blood pressure and infection. So the, there's a difference in the ranking from what Nana mentioned, but the problems are the same once they get to the hospital. Of course, the difference in New York City is that most all get to very high-tech settings. And so our problem is in some interesting ways developing the kind of continuity of care and linkages that Nana's working on from outside the hospital um, into the hospital because our hospitals are, there's work to be done, but they're quite attuned to the sort of crisis management issues, but um, perhaps less connected to the opportunities for prevention. Okay. One last question. I'll keep you on the spot for one more second. Um, at the beginning of the program, and I don't know if I kind of went out on a limb um, in saying that I thought we were perhaps starting to reframe problems and solutions and making better uh, sense of kind of resources and ingenuity. Is there anything about that that resonated for you as you think about what kinds of uh, solutions may be emerging even in, in, in New York City, which I know is far away from northern Ghana? Well, I think clearly the sense is that almost 50%, if not over 50% of these uh, maternal deaths could be prevented. So that paradigm shift from where um, America's health system has tended to focus, which is making sure that the specialty care and high-intensity care was working well, um, really gives us a message that we really need to focus increasingly on um, the sort of primary care first contact system and its um, linkages to um, the high-intensity centers that um, that deliver um, all women, by and large, in the United States. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, that's Joe Ivy Buford uh, from the New York Academy of Medicine, and I, I can just imagine Nana sitting there thinking about already some connections, and we'll come back to that. Um, I want to bring uh, Sue Gullo in now and also Kim Armour, and I'm also going to bring up their mics. I put things down because the two of them are furiously taking notes, and which is great. That's part of what we're doing here, and we hope you're taking some notes too. So, Sue, when you uh, – kind of a similar thing that I posed to Joe, when you compare and contrast uh, some of the issues and themes here uh, compared to the work that you're involved in uh, in the perinatal collaboratives, kind of what stands out? And maybe you should also sort of set the scene for us about the nature of the perinatal work. Thanks, Madge. Um, I, I think I'm really struck with the fact that um, um, in, in Ghana they're working to the hospitals consider the safe haven, and as they work to draw patients from their home to the hospital, that here in the U.S. we're saying that the hospital isn't necessarily the safest place to deliver, although because as we understand more and more about our systems, we have a lot of work to do. So our perinatal work has certainly uncovered um, design system design defects in terms of failure to rescue, failure to manage, failure to identify. Same issues, I think, that Nana brought up in Ghana and that Joe, um, Dr. Bufard also just brought up, but definitely within the U.S. and within our work especially, we have we, we have identified those as key issues, that even though we have these highly complex systems with lots of resources, um, that um, more isn't necessarily the best. We need to use more uh, to use more efficiently what we have and make the systems work much better. Okay. So we have moms who deliver in the hospitals, but we don't necessarily identify them as high risk, keep them safe, and then again, there's that whole period post-childbirth up until the first year where they also remain significantly at, ri at risk, and I think access and monitoring in that period increases some of the, the, the maternal deaths that we're seeing as well. Okay. Kim, you want to jump in here, and uh, you just 
before we uh, got on the air, you were also uh, saying something to me about thinking about that maternal risk uh, period as much larger than just thinking about death during childbirth or in, in the immediate situation. Yeah, thank you, Madge. You know, it's an interesting thing here in the United States because um, having uh, the individual states um, make determination on what's reportable and what's not really creates difficulties for us in tracking data. So we know that there are pockets that we're missing because certain birth certificate pieces of data aren't uh, kept or reportable. Or, for instance, I'm from the state of Illinois, and a maternal death is reportable up to one year after the birth of the infant. Uh, but if a woman delivers at my hospital and has a death or a complication 60 miles away, 300 miles away, uh, they may not tie that loop back, and so it's missed in our state database, and it's through the data that we're able to measure and identify the issues and then address the types of improvement that we can um, do to correct these uh, risks of mortality. And again, as Dr. Buffard said, our, I, as a perinatal nurse practitioner, you know, I see women into their 50s having babies now, and these women are coming to me with asthma, a kidney transplant, uh, you know, chronic hypertension, Tension since they were 28, and these are significant medical risks that uh, put them at a higher risk for maternal complications and death. Okay. Sue, uh, thanks, Kim. Uh, Sue, back to you. What would you say are sort of the key things that you're trying to work on now in the perinatal collaboratives uh, to basically uh, reduce uh, morbidity and complications? Well, I would say it's the same as what we're working on in medicine overall and in healthcare is that we provide reliable care. So, again, that we take the the best evidence and the best practice and, and ensure that it reaches every patient every time. Um, and we can't say that the system that we currently have does that. We can't make, as people dig, as hospitals dig deeper, as prenatal care sites dig deeper, no one can make the commitment that every patient every time gets the care that they deserve or that that is based on the evidence. And, and that's where, really where we have to look at those systems. Mm-hmm. Uh- did you want to say something, Kim? I yeah. did. Thanks, yeah. Madge. I think it's really important to recognize, too, that that some of the disparity even between Ghana and here and yet similarities is that we both have these complex patients um, from a medical management standpoint, but we also in the United States have a complexity of the patient um, in that they are extremely, the consumer is extremely knowledgeable, but not always with evidence-based information. And so as Sue was just stating, in the United States, what we find is we create the harm by maybe doing too many things for them because they, they want this, they want that, and yet they're not informed enough to know the risk that comes with some of the things they're asking for. Mm-hmm. So we have to identify, again, their, the assessment of their knowledge, whether it's factual, it's evidence-based, and then increase the awareness and education and knowledge to make good informed decision making. When you say things that are being asked for, are we referring to maybe C-sections, kind of earlier delivery, that sort of thing? Absolutely. You yeah. know, um, they're tired, they're exhausted, they want the doctor to, you know, or the practitioner to start Pitocin for a labor induction, but their body may not be ready. And by starting early, we end up creating harm because then they end up with a cesarean section from a failed labor induction or augmentation. And it's our responsibility to be able to sit with them and inform them and educate them to make good choices that are healthy and safe for themselves and their their child and uh, that's coming in their entire family. Okay, thanks. That's Kim Armour. Uh, um, I want to also. Um, I think what I'll do is I want to. I'm going to just circle back very quickly again to Nana and Joe, and then we're going to open it up for questions and comments. So Nana. And now you're listening uh, to sort of how the people reacted to your thing. And uh, we we talked as we prepared for this program about trying to find this balance between what we uh, your your vision of skilled delivery 
and some of the things that then uh, crop up because of a very high-tech world. And you said this, this issue even plays out within Ghana itself in terms of urban and rural. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, certainly. I mean, Ghana in many ways is like uh, two countries. We have a, a, an urban area that has a mix of high-income people and low-income people. We certainly have some urban poverty as well. But we have a rural area that is very different from the urban areas. And the, the scenario that I was talking about in the early part of the show was much more relevant to the rural population. In the urban area, we have some um, over-utilization of services because the services are available, the people are knowledgeable, they go on the web just like in the U.S. and they read up on um, uh, various uh, things, they don't have complete information and potentially request more services than they actually need. So we have some of that going on. Um, our national uh, C-section rate is about um, 12% or so. C-section so rate you're referring to? I'm sorry, I just want to make sure yes. you said your national C-section rate? Exactly. It's in the teens. It's in the early teens. But but that's the national rate. When you divide that or when you desegregate that across the 10 regions and even to the district level, we have some areas with the Sudan section rates as low as 2 or 3 percent and areas um, in the high teens getting close to 20. So there's a a wide variability there. But I think the overwhelming picture for the majority of the population is actually delayed seeking of care and they come very late. So even, even for the, some of the hospitals that have high C-section rates, it's not because of overutilization of patients demanding too much, but because the patients show up too late. Okay. And the, the situation is so advanced that the only way to save them is with a C-section. All right. Thanks again, Nana. All right, Joe, just a very quick question. I, I, was, I remember now kind of reading through the white paper that the New York Academy of Medicine put out based on the conference, and one of the things that's described in there is sort of a, uh, an effort to better collate and understand the data uh, and a lot more communication. Uh, how important is that in terms of uh, the, the type of work that you're trying to do? Well, that's very important, as Sue said. I think um, not only are there discrepancies in national definitions, but, you know, within uh, New York, we have the state um, has one approach both to definition and um, and reporting and follow-up, and the city, of course, has another. Um, so part of the focus of this meeting, and I think there's good consensus developing um, now, is that there, there should be mandatory reporting, um, which there now is not in New York. Um, and that um, there should probably be universal, uh, you know, uh, case review. There's some debate about whether you could pick a percentage, an epidemiologic percentage of cases that would give you the knowledge, but I think everybody's feeling is that by reviewing all cases, um, you can then close the circle and come back uh, to understand what the issues are and better educate the provider community as well as the the public. So that's one big um, next step that came out of um, out of our meeting, and um, I think the other big recommendation um, need is is harder. I mean, the data issues are are tricky, but also moving data um, in a patient specific um, sort of health record so that we know that what happens in the prenatal period or a woman at risk is identified um, well before she comes in in labor and certainly can be flagged as soon as she hits the hospital to have, you know, the right kind of review. And 
the difference in, I have to comment on the difference in C-section rates in New York City. I mean, the average is about 23%, and we have hospitals that have as high as 48% C-section rates. Right. Um, and this relates to some degree to um, this issue of elective C-section and a kind of trust in technology uh, that may or may not be in the best interest of the, of the woman or the patient, although obviously... C-section has its place in, in very important situations. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we've been talking and we are talking about maternal health uh, in Ghana and the U.S. on this edition of WIHI. My guests are Sue Gullo, Kim Armour, Nana Twimdanso, and Joe Ivy Buford. And it is time now to bring uh, those of you who've joined us today into the conversation in a direct way with your questions and comments. I have some additional questions myself. Uh, Jesse always has a, qu- a question or two that he's thinking about during the program. So let's uh, remind people, Jesse, how to uh, chat in their questions or comments, and uh, we'll we'll move on to that section of the program. Certainly, Madge. So if you'd like to ask a question uh, to any of our guests or make a comment about what you're seeing and what's going on at your location, uh, just enter some text into the text entry box at the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. Select that you're going to send that message to all participants. That way, everyone on our program today can see uh, your comment and learn from your insight. We did get one question from Dale McGee, uh, and I'll throw that one out there, and I think it's for Nana. Uh, In Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, again, tying our area to yours, extreme prematurity from Ghanaian immigrants, generally less than 24 weeks, is a significant driver of infant mortality for that city. How much of infant mortality in Ghana is related to the extreme prematurity? Is it worse for Ghana than other African countries? Uh, In Massachusetts, extreme prematurity for women from Ghana is higher than for immigrants from other African countries. So some interesting um, thoughts there, and I'm interested in your reactions, Nana. Okay, Nana, did you get that question? I did. Um, extreme prematurity, yes. Extreme prematurity is not, um, is not a phenomenon we see a lot of in Ghana because those children, especially born in the rural areas, would not have a chance of survival. So in terms of the, the actual count, I don't have that really available, but we do have um, uh, one, prematurity is one of the top three causes of neonatal death in Ghana, but extreme prematurity, most of those children don't have a chance because we don't have um, ICU settings in the, at the secondary level hospitals, at the district level hospitals, we don't have ICU. Uh, available there. So until they make it to um, a tertiary hospital or a regional hospital, those children don't have a chance at all. In terms of the higher risk factors in Ghanaian women than other Africans, that's new to me. Although I have to say I heard on the BBC a few months ago about um, prematurity in immigrants to the UK compared to the locals and the African immigrants in particular I don't think they mentioned Ghanaians per se but um, there was an an attempt to analyze why that could be whether there was something in the antenatal period, uh, potentially psychological stress factors in the antenatal period that predisposed the mothers of a premature baby or not but I, I don't have all the details of that. It's just a five-minute thing I heard on the BBC. Okay. Thanks, uh, Dr. Uh, Nana Twomdan. So just a reminder, uh, again, you can chat in your questions and send to all participants on the program. Up oh, there, oh, I guess somebody was writing a very long, okay, thank you. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was wondering where, where were the questions. Okay, well, we're going to slowly uh, make sense of that one. I'm going to just though throw out one more here. Uh, as I read through this one, I'm going to ask uh, perhaps uh, all, all my panel members here just to comment. There is a Millennium Developmental Goal here uh, from the United Nations Millennium Declaration in 2000. There's a goal of reducing maternal mortality uh, 75% by 2015. Uh, a lot of different studies have been out of late that uh, present sort of a mixed picture at best about what's going on. And I'm curious to what extent it matters that there's this millennium developmental goal, uh, development goal, I should say, in terms of galvanizing efforts, will, uh, et cetera. Um, Sue, maybe I'll, I'll ask you. I mean, does that sort of uh, knock you in the head at all in terms of make a difference in the work that you're doing? I think it does, but I think the consciousness needs to be raised. Unfortunately, especially with the Millennium Development Goals, the ones that relate to women and children have been put to the back burner as as far as um, with some of the um, leaders in other countries getting together and some of the big summits that they have had. Um, it hasn't felt that women and children have been at the forefront of any of the media coverage, any of, of what has happened or to raise the national pro, or international profile of this work. So so from that perspective, I think we have a lot of work to do on the ground, although there's a lot of very hardworking agencies out there that are trying to raise that profile. Mm-hmm. Joe, uh, does it make uh, any difference in, in, your, in, in, in your realm? Well, I think Sue's right. Uh, I would I'd sort of add a little bit. I think the U.S. doesn't pay a lot of attention to international targets. I'm not saying we don't try to do something about them, but I think we sort of think it's not our problem. It's, you know, about these other countries, and obviously what we're talking about today indicates that while the numbers may be significantly smaller, you know, to the degree these are preventable and soluble problems, we ought to be paying as much attention as anyone else. Um, I am involved, um, actually, with, uh, as part of the U.S. Institute of Medicine with academies of medicine and science worldwide, and um, they recently met in conjunction with um, the G8 meeting um, in Toronto and uh, um, issued actually a statement of, they usually issue only one or two statements, which um, they then transmit to the heads of state. And this was to encourage uh, all countries, but especially donor countries, to meet their commitments on MDG 4 and 5 and to pay more attention um, to reaching this goal because of the gaps and in some parts of the world um, actually going in the opposite direction. So I would say, um, and this did in fact end up in the final communique um, of the G8. Um, in addition, there is a project um, in Africa of African Academies of Medicine, Science, and uh, this group actually met in Ghana, which was the last time I saw Nana um, in uh, the fall of this past year. Um, and they, um, as a group of academies, uh, uh, supported both the data analysis around the problems and progress or lack of progress on MDG 4 and 5 um, in Sub-Saharan Africa and also went on the record to say that they would make it their business to try to advocate to government and bring that evidence to government for um, a higher level of political commitment, which I think ultimately is pretty fundamental to 
moving this issue since, as we've discussed, we, we know a lot of the solutions and how to implement them. Thank you. Okay, we're just listening to Dr. Joe Ivy Buford. Uh, there are two questions in the chat right now, Nana, and I think uh, they're for you. Uh, I, both of them seem to sort of relate to the same thing. I think some folks are wondering if you could expand on what is it, uh, what does it mean to carefully tap into the strengths of local communities and cultures, and sort of the second, I think, related question is uh, how does that also help build trust then between the community and uh, providers? Okay, uh, Matt, uh, thanks for that question. Yeah. Uh, before I get to that, I really wanted to touch on to the Millennium Development. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think Joe's right that perhaps in the U.S. Um, there, there might not be as much attention to some of these international goals. Uh, but certainly in African countries and definitely in Ghana, the Millennium Development Goals are important and are a rallying cry for politicians, technical people like ourselves, as well as communities that are aware of these goals for child survival, maternal survival, and all the other uh, six goals that we have that we're working towards. I think it, it really does focus attention and it allows us to look at resource allocation more carefully. Just last year, the health summit in Ghana, we have a health summit twice a year where all the stakeholders in health come together. One of the things that our Minister of Health really stressed was we are busy doing a lot of activities, but what do our activities head towards? We need to focus our activities towards health outcomes that we care about as a nation. And he mentioned maternal survival, child survival, and all the other health interventions like HIV AIDS. So I think for us it's very important nationally as well as internationally. Now let me try and address sure. the, the uh-huh. questions about um, community engagement, building trust, and getting them to change their behavior towards uh, safer health care. Um, I think, you know, in, in medical school, one of the things that we learned in uh, working with any community is really trying to understand the explanatory model. There's so many instances in medicine where you, the physician, diagnose, uh, prescribe, and assume that the, the treatment will be taken, especially in the outpatient setting. And then a month later you come back, the condition hasn't changed or gotten worse. And through careful um, discussion and understanding with the family and the patient, you find out that they didn't understand what you said or they didn't, they didn't explain the disease the same way to themselves as our medical explanation. And therefore they couldn't justify why they should take the medicine. And I think that same approach to approaching each individual and each community, trying to understand how do they see their bodies, how do they see uh, their bodies when things go wrong, do they have the same explanations that we do in health? I mean, we're trained in human biology and uh, medical intervention, medicine, pharmaceuticals, etc. They don't have that. A lot of them don't have that. So I think the first thing to do is to get out of our medical frame and try to understand which frame they're using. You know, we have um, learning sessions in our project where we bring several health workers together to understand um, where they feel that they're struggling, where they want to do better. And we sometimes hear the health staff saying that, oh, that's for that community that's so stubborn and that's so difficult. And you, you go deeper. Why are they stubborn? Well, they don't, we tell them this and they don't do it. Or we do this for them and they don't do this other thing. And I think we, we've encouraged people not to judge the communities too quickly. Go and find out why. Spend time with them in their homes. In, um, in their community meetings or derbas as we call them here in Ghana 
and learn from them. And once we learn from them, we can change our health education messages or modify them so that they make sense to them. We use explanatory models that, really, that they can relate to, and then they will come. A good example would be um, in the postnatal care work that we've been doing, we learned from some of the communities that they have a belief that a child who's born outside the community is, um, is impure. And this is why they insist mm -hmm. on their women delivering in the home. So one of the midwives who was doing the community engagement asked them, so what do you do if a family member is born in Kumasi or Accra, meaning the two big cities in Ghana? And they said, well, when the child comes back, we have a purification ritual to purify the child and then the child is accepted into the community. So the midwife then suggested, is it possible to view skilled delivery in the same way? Women who deliver in the hmm. clinic, when they return, you can do the same purification ritual and the baby will be accepted into the community. And they said, oh, sure, why not? So after that, that chief and the rest of the leaders of that community were willing to promote skilled delivery. But that solution, I think the key thing here, that solution wouldn't work for every community. We as health people need to be patient and be respectful and find out what other challenges work with them. And if we do that over time, they learn to trust us and they get to understand that we are only looking in their best, looking out for their best interests, not because we have an agenda. You know, one of the things that we also notice sometimes in, in the learning sessions that we do is um, the health workers talk about coverage and, you know, skilled delivery coverage, postnatal coverage, my coverage figures. And so it almost seems that the work they do is to make their data look good. And so we try, can we turn that around and say, all this coverage for what purpose? Can we change the conversation around outcomes? Can we go from just coverage numbers that make you look good to outcomes? Are the people living better? Are they surviving? And I think that helps. So bringing the partnership between the health workers and the communities so that their communities don't feel less being because the health workers are better educated than them. Um, they are working together to achieve the same goal. Well, that's um, really... I think yeah. that addresses that question, Matt. Yes, no, that does in, in a very... Uh, uh, it's very, very vivid. Um, and uh, I, I think it also, it's, it's, it is, it's a kind of uh, social cultural uh, process. Uh, and uh, I, I've, Sue and uh, Kim are nodding their heads, and I suspect uh, Joe is nodding her head too. Uh, uh, so thanks for those questions. Uh, I'm going to ask another one. Uh, Nana, you mentioned earlier that midwives and doctors are not likely to be willing to work in rural areas. Have you ever thought of training specific leaders in each of these communities so that they can exercise clinical awareness and implement healthy rules to prevent mortality during delivery? Um, yes, I think um, the key for us in traditional communities where people live in extended family settings, they have a chief, they have very uh, well-identified community leaders, is really to have a, um, a wide approach, a spectrum along the engagement. You engage with a woman when she comes to clinic, you invite her to bring family members with her, and then the leaders of the communities, you actually go and talk to them. And if the leaders understand why you're promoting you know, vaccination or promoting skill delivery or postnatal care, whatever it is that you're promoting, if they understand it in their language, and they have a rationale for it, 
and you have a good relationship with the community, then they're likely to promote it to them. It's, it's, it's almost like um, a diffusion of innovation model where if the change agents or the key opinion leaders, meaning the chiefs and the senior people in the community, believe in something and promote it, then the whole community follows. That's in the rural areas. I think the urban areas are a little bit different because people don't tend to live in such large extended families, um, somewhat more isolated, and therefore potentially decision-making is a more um, in individual basis. And therefore, I think it's a little easier sometimes around um, uh, health education in the urban areas. But in the rural areas, you certainly have to work across the entire spectrum. The family is key. The mother-in-laws, the father-in-laws have great control over what happens to health care for women and children. Same thing with the chiefs. So uh, thank you, uh, Nana and Sue and, and Kim uh, are my nodders across uh, the table. Um, and so I'm going to ask them, what what is kind of uh, striking you? Uh, I, Nana's talking about a lot of things in terms of, a, you know, influencers in some sense and understanding that. There's also a whole theme going on here about community. And what does it mean to sort of work with the, the sort of fabric and the resources of the community? Sue? Yeah, I, I'm nodding my head because everything you said, Nana, is so true, even in the U.S. So, and, and how we engage with patients, how we meet them where they are instead of taking our views, our beliefs, and, and imposing them on them. Um, but the discussion that, or what Nana just talked about, meeting the patient, understanding where they're coming from, the lessons can be learned globally on that, whether it's in perinatal care, whether it's in medicine. You know, we talk about non-compliant patients, which is a horrible term, because what we often find is the patient's not is non-compliant because they can't understand what they're supposed to be compliant to. And so no matter where we are, I think the opportunity is that we focus on patients and families and what they bring to the table. And actually last week in meeting with um, the head of the March of Dimes, the same thing. Our big question is here in the U.S., how do we engage mothers in understanding their care when it comes to better outcomes with perinatal care? Uh-huh. And I guess uh, is there anything that sort of, uh, Kim, I, I don't want to cut you off in terms of what you wanted to say, but I'm just curious, is there a good example of that maybe of sort of meeting uh, someone where they are? Yeah, definitely. And I, and I would, um, I would reference to all the uh, listeners and attendees today to look at a couple different resources that I'm aware of and one is uh, the Childbirth Connection Group has done a wonderful listening to mothers uh, study and uh, that's available at childbirthconnection.com and I could also share, uh, I'm a, a PhD student right now and uh, I think uh, it's really critical at this time in, in uh, healthcare around the world uh, that as Anana said that we recognize uh, this is not about putting our belief systems on our patients and our consumers here in the U.S or anywhere around the world, rather, uh, we've used uh, data uh, from quantitative studies to really drive healthcare, uh, and we need to start understanding and appreciating qualitative research and uh, listening to uh, all of our uh, patients and those we care for to get their story uh, and interpret common themes and determine what it is that they're needing from us that we're unable to meet or haven't addressed uh, rather than trying to layer a system over them um, with processes that don't function or work for them. So I think looking at phenomenology, look at a grounded theory, narrative uh, uh, theories, it can be very, very valuable for us now and in the future and how we drive healthcare. 
Okay. Uh, thank you, uh, Kim. And uh, let me just, there's another interesting uh, question about um, kind of agency uh, for women here. And I guess Nana spoke of that. Uh, Joe, maybe uh, as we start to kind of round out the hour here, uh, how, how would you kind of characterize that as kind of where solutions may reside in terms of what you're trying to do with maternal mortality in New York City in terms of women in agency? Well, I think the, I mean, one thing that theme that came up a lot in the recent meeting um, was women really uh, getting information, especially this kind of, you know, more recent reality about um, the potential complications they face um, having, you know, becoming pregnant in the first place and then having a baby so that they can be their own advocates during both the prenatal care period and as they arrive in the hospital. Um, and I think that involves um, direct uh, information to them as well as to their providers. And, you know, I was reminded, um, Alan Rosenfield, who unfortunately passed away um, in the last year or so, who was such an advocate for women internationally, you know, sort of raised this issue, where is the M and MCH and maternal child health? And I think we really have to look at the M a little bit more in the U.S. because in some ways, um, you know, as I said, the numbers are small relative to the kinds of of uh, challenges that Nana's facing, but there, uh, any kind of preventable death needs to have significant attention. And I think so the issue of women uh, taking this on and women's um, groups taking it on, I think they need the information in order to get started with the advocacy. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, we're really coming uh, towards the end here, so I want to thank uh, Joe Ivy uh, Buford, Dr. Uh, Nana Twomdanso, Kim Armour here, and Sue Gullah with me in the studio. Uh, everybody plays a really good role. Thank you for your questions and comments. Uh, an archived version of this program will be on our website around this time tomorrow. you also find a handy resource document, and you can also catch this program uh, not only on our website but on iTunes. And when you log off the program today, you can download the chat. If you'd like uh, any of the slides that we showed, some of those beautiful pictures from uh, photographs from Ghana, and also there's a brief uh, survey that we'd love it if you could fill out to help us uh, keep improving this program. Any questions whatsoever, you can email us at info at IHI.org. We're taking a bit of a summer break on WIHI for vacation and to rev up and develop new programs for the fall. We're already set for September, though, and on the next WIHI on September 9th, 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. We're examining powerful and emerging ways to better detect harm that's occurring to patients in the hospital, looking at new methodologies that begin to show us perhaps a national rate of harm and a baseline from which to make dramatic improvements. That information is on our website now, so you can enroll early if you'd like to. The people who help make WIHI possible are Jonathan Small, Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, uh, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Vicki Minden. I also want to give a special nod on this edition of WIHI to the first champion and instigator of the idea of a regular broadcast of this sort from IHI, a forum for enlightened and timely discussion about improvement in health reform, thinking not just about the U.S., but globally, as we did today. That is, of course, Don Berwick. He's IHI's former president and CEO now, and just this week sworn in as the new administrator of CMS. So thank you, Don, for this idea and so many others. Also, 
also a big shout out to Jonathan Small, IHI's Vice President for Marketing and Communications, who helped me realize Don's vision and who's been with me and the project every step of the way. So thank you very much uh, for joining us. A big thank you to our guests again, very eloquent. Uh, I hope you'll check out the website for a lot more information and background. We were obviously only able to kind of hit some highlights, but hopefully we gave you some interesting things uh, to consider. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.